turn to John chapter 10. My memory reminds me that I preached from this passage when I preached at the Master Cutler's service in the cathedral some years ago when our own Peter Lee was Master Cutler and I was his chaplain and I did say to Peter that the only thing I could preach was the gospel and he very much wanted me to preach the gospel so with all the high and mighty, all the MPs and the VIPs who turn up on these occasions I preached from John chapter 10 but having life to the full and what I want to say to them in a sense I, I say to us here very differently is that if you actually want your community to be, as they would claim they do, a caring community, where does the inspiration come from? Well, having the service in the cathedral, in the centre of the city, uh, which boasts its master cutler, is a reminder to us that that's the inspiration, or ought to be, because the church ought to be that which fires the community to live in the spirit of Christ, and then, of course, the church will only be that if we who are the church are that. I think every day in my personal prayers, I finish my prayers by asking for God to turn this nation back to his ways. God only knows we've a long way to go to turn us back. And so that we might turn back, I pray for the church to be revived and renewed, which is so desperately important. And then I remind myself that I need to be renewed daily if that's going to happen in my life and through me. And I believe that, that's kind of where we ought to be. I'm reminded that uh, in the New Testament, there was a character who had a great position in his nation, the Ethiopian chancellor of the Exchequer, and he'd gone from a pagan country with no religion of any common sense to Jerusalem, where he'd heard there was the one true God, and he'd gone with great enthusiasm, but of course he didn't find the reality. He was a unit, therefore couldn't join in, and in any case... It was largely dead religion in spite of its name. But he was going home with the scriptures. He got a copy of Isaiah. And you know the story, many of you. He was met on the way by my namesake, Philip, who jumped on the chariot and he opened the scriptures and taught them Jesus from Isaiah 53. But that could have been the most worst, the most worthless journey a man had ever made. Thousands of miles to find not a living religion but something that had died but he got the scriptures and he found life. That kind of pilgrimage we want to see happening. And so we've come to this passage looking at life in the sun. We've come to the challenge, of the, the offer of I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The exact opposite of what the world thinks. You remember there's a pagan poet who said, Thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean, the world has go grown grey by thy breath. Man called Swinburne. Uh, that's what many people think. So the way of Christ is the way of denial of life. As a young man, uh, my father, who wasn't a professing Christian, sadly, but he taught me to love cricket, so that was something. And I remember he bought me uh, C.B. Fry's book, a life worth living. Now, for many people, C.B. Fry is not a name you would remember, but I'm telling you, he had, he played, he captained England at cricket. He was a, a, an international at rugby. He played right back for Southampton in the FA Cup final in 1902, I think. He was an international athlete. He boxed for his university. He got the first class honours degree at, at Oxford. He was at the United Nations, the ambassador for India. Extraordinary thing, because this friend... Ranjit Sindhu played cricket, was a, an important man in India. And here's the great climax. He was offered, but refused, 
the crown of Albania. Now, I can't use that as an amazing thing. One doesn't blame him for refusing the crown of Albania. If you ask me what his credentials were, I hadn't a clue. But that was the man. So he wrote, A Life Worth Living. Two or three years ago, when I was going around a second-hand bookshop, I got uh, a modern biography of C.B. Fry. It told a very different story. He was an unhappy man. He was often an arrogant man. He made a mess of all kinds of things, including his marriage. And he never really found what was a life worth living. Everything going for him. All these great things, but never found what life was. And I'm reminded of, a, of, a, of another bizarre moment, but it has a point. Um, years ago, when Margaret and I, who attended the same little church in Blackburn in Lancashire, I remember there was a, we, they had a concert, and some gentleman, uh, not knowing the ethos of the, of the church, uh, sang what was in those uh, days uh, a popular song. It went something, I won't sing it, Enjoy yourself, it's later than you think. Do you remember that song, Enjoy? And we had a vicar then who was something of a, of a firebrand, and the gentleman was roundly rebuked uh, for singing it. He stumped out with all his family. It was a great, a, a great and exciting occasion. But he thought, enjoy yourself, it's later than you think was possible. But you see, this is the way of the world. This is the life of the world. Jesus offers the opposite. He wants to say to us that all the world thinks is exciting doesn't make a life worth living. If you remember far back, when we started this series, and I was preaching that evening, we looked at John chapter 5, where Jesus talks about people having passed from death to life. That whoever believes in Jesus has already passed from death to life and will not be condemned. And we saw that as eternal life in the Son. That is the crucial moment for any person. It's not the moment before they die. In a sense, that's a fairly unimportant moment. The crucial moment for a person is when they're confronted with Jesus Christ at 7 o'clock on the Sunday evening in August 2010, if not before. That's the crucial moment. And if we believe in him, then we do pass from death to life. And our little series has been hovering around uh, three of the miracles of Jesus, three of the signs that pointed to who he was. John chapter 5 was the man who had been an invalid for... 38 years and was wonderfully made to live and all the teaching that followed, Jesus homed in on that. Then there was a feeding of the 5,000 and all that said about the offer of life, the sign pointing to the reality and this particular chapter about the Good Shepherd for this week and next week followed a quite remarkable thing. For in chapter 9, there was a man who was born blind who was given sight who had a remarkable uh, mind and dared to take on the religious authorities. And at the end of chapter 9, he's thrown out of the synagogue. He is excommunicated because he dared to argue. If you have a Bible open in chapter 9, verse 34, this is what the religious people said. To a man who'd been born blind, who could now live, who'd got a new life, to this they replied, you were steeped in Sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? Can you think of anything worse than that? This man had been born blind. At the beginning of the chapter, they asked the question, who sinned that this man was born blind? Neither, said Jesus. But these religious leaders who'd lost the plot completely said you were steeped in birth. Out you go. Extraordinary. And so Jesus then says in, in chapter 9, verse 39, 
Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. The great reversal, you see. The religious leaders who'd lost the plot got more and more blind as time went on. The man who was able to see physically came to see spiritually, and eventually bowed to the feet of Jesus and said, Lord, I believe. And what is lovely, and this leads into our theme, Jesus went to find this man in verse 35 of chapter 9. He wanted to help him. He was a a real pastor. And he went to find him and uh, helped him to come to a living faith. And that led, you see, in chapter 10, verse 1, to the picture about the two shepherds, the false and the true shepherd. Uh, And there's no doubt what he's talking about. These religious leaders were false shepherds. They turned this man out who had just, in fact, entered into the fold. That was the drama of it. Do you notice in verse 6? They didn't understand. And if in uh, whatever time I finish my sermon, you are still not fully cognizant of what it's all about, I'm in good company. They didn't understand Jesus, so maybe I won't get through either. Because, you see, there's none so blind as uh, those who want to be blind. There are people who just want to remain as they are. They don't want to be moved on. But for Jesus, it gives the lead in to yet another of his great I am's in verse 7. I am the gate for the sheep. And if you, uh, in in case you haven't got it, he will mention it again in verse 9. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And he wants to get that message across with clarity in that particular context. This is what it's meant to be pastor, a, a pastor. Sometimes I get people say to me things like this about various vicars. They say, well, you, he's not much of a preacher, but he's a very good pastor. And I always find that very difficult to understand because it seems to me that the pastoring of a church goes on from here, largely. Oh, of course, it, it does go further. It, it goes into personal care for people. But the pastor is the one who teaches and the pastor is the one who nourishes And the real pastoral care of Jesus was to teach the truth. And it's very significant, I think, that these false shepherds got more and more angry because Jesus dared to say that he was the gate. We've already had this in these passages. The division caused because Jesus dared to speak the truth. And the challenge of this is that we should be listen to the one who's a pastor, respond to him, and then reflect it in our world. Well, I do believe, in case you got me wrong, I do believe uh, a pastor doesn't just preach from the pulpit. He needs to be where people are. Uh, some of you know that when I was for 30 years or 29 years vicar here, I did do a fair amount of knocking on doors. I remember knocking on a door in Hallamshire Road just not long before I retired, and the lady came to the door and she said, she saw my collar, she knew who I was, well, I don't come to church, why are you calling on me? Well, I said it's the kind of job of the vicar of a parish to sort of get in touch with people wherever they are. Well, she said, I've lived in this house for 20-odd years and no vicar's ever been to see me before. And I thought, what a rotten lot of vicars they are. They've never been to see him. Until I realised I've been the vicar for the last 25 years. So I realised I was in trouble. But the pastor, the Jesus pastor, which should inspire us all, is a pastor who... As we see next week, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But look with me at two things. First, a present reality. That comes out in 
the first six verses. What is the present reality? And then we'll look at the personal, a permanent relationship. A present reality. There is the false shepherd, and uh, Jesus in verse 8 is not suggesting that all the Old Testament prophets were charlatans. He is saying that what had happened with these religious leaders who turned this man away was that that was so often the truth. That so many people who claimed to be pastors were false pastors. Can I just read you um, three little adverbial contrasts? That's a nice little drama. In 1 Peter chapter 5, when Peter's writing about what shepherds ought to be, he actually gives uh, three not buts. I always like these not buts of Scripture. Here they are. Be shepherds of God's flock, says 1 Peter 5, verse 2. Not because you must, but because you are willing. Not as a grim obligation, but out of, sh- out of joy you want to share. Not because, n- not greedy for money, but eager to serve. You read in the press the headlines of, an Ill- of a, one clergyman, ordained gentleman, who's earning thousands and thousands of pounds with illegal weddings for immigrants. You read that, did you? Well, that, of course, is an extreme case. Mercifully, there are a few of that charlatan around. But the principle of not doing it for what I get out of it, but for what I can put in in service, is a very real challenge. And we learn it from Jesus, who ultimately had no place of his own. And when he died, all he had was a robe, what a challenge that is to those of us who are pastors. And the third uh, adverbial contrast, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. The true shepherd doesn't dominate. The true shepherd leads, but he leads from in front. And he leads in love. And he leads in the spirit of Jesus. Paul Shepherd, there. Now what I find intriguing is that when Jesus talks about false prophets in the Sermon on the Mount, as he does in Matthew chapter 7, beware of false prophets who inwardly are ravenous wolves, though they're dressed in sheep's clothing. What has he just talked about? He has just said, there are two ways in life. There's a broad road that leads to destruction. There's a narrow road that leads to death. And beware of false prophets. For they will always tell you, you mustn't be so narrow. We're all going to get there at the end. And isn't it significant that as soon as Jesus begins to say, I am the gate, as in John 14, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, it is ever a mark of a false shepherd that they cannot live with the uniqueness of Christ. And ultimately, that kind of shepherd will not draw the sheep. Ultimately, that kind of liberal teaching won't bring people in. Thank God, in the midst of all our problems in our church and society in this land at least there are pockets where the gospel is preached where people do respond if only people would see what it is that appeals to the sheep who are in desperate need the false shepherd but then happily the true shepherd a lovely picture of the true shepherd have you noticed about him in verse 3 the true shepherd calls his own sheep by name he knows them by name if you'd like to uh, ponder this uh, when you get home tonight. Sometimes I don't sleep terrible when I've been preaching. Uh, 
I gather some people don't sleep terribly well when they heard me preaching, so whatever, they, whatever it may be. So if you, if you don't sleep tonight, uh, you, can, you can ponder how often Jesus calls people by name. Martha, Martha, Simon, Simon, Saul, Saul, lovely. And how did Mary Magdalene suddenly discover Jesus? When he'd risen from the dead, she'd seen him, she'd thought he was a gardener, until he said, Mary... That was enough. Now, I love this thought. You see, that Jesus knows by name. It's a challenge to us who want to be pastors. It's a challenge to the church to be the church that inspires a community where people are often numbers and not names. We, we, he, he knows us by name. Oh, do you remember, there's a story in the Gospel, a very strange story, when Jesus meets a madman, a demon-possessed madman, and the first thing Jesus does when he meets the gathering demoniac, he asks the question, what is your name? Extraordinary question to ask. And the answer comes out, my name is Legion, for we are many. His only name was the name of the, the demons who possessed him. But Jesus wants to, him to start by realising that he is an individual and he matters. What is your name? I wonder how many of the old is here. There are a few of us around. Remember the catechism in the Book of Common Prayer? Do you remember the catechism? No, there's a dim look in everybody's eyes. Well, you're going to learn something now. Uh, I was brought... Oh, thank, thank you, the back row. There's one uh, catechism. Thank you. Um, when, in the catechism, there's a, there's a question. The first question is, what is your name? That's in the catechism. And the answer you give is N or M. Uh, this is interesting. That's what the prayer book says, N or M. Now, I was a naughty boy and I've been prepared for confirmation. And when I vicar asked, uh, did this, I asked him the question, please, sir, can you tell me why it says N or M? Oh, well, said my vicar, N stands for the boy's name and M stands for the girl's name. Well, I said, why doesn't it say M or, and, or F or B or G for boy or girl? Shut up, Philip, and concentrate. And that was, that's all I got. And years later, I discovered, do you know why? This is not meant to do with the sermon, but it's helpful. N or M actually is a printer's error. That way back in the 17th century, it was meant to be nomina, which, as you all know, is Latin for names. And they shortened it to N-O-M, but some printer made a mistake, and he put N or M, and that has perpetuated for 300 years. Now, that is of no great significance, but you've learned something. What is of significance is the catechism starts by saying, who are you? Who are you? They taunted at football grounds and the other side are doing badly. Who are you? But to, to Jesus, you are very important. He knows you by name and he will lead you. He will go in front. He won't drive you from behind. He won't tell you how to behave from afar. He will lead you. Please, this to me is very important. That can be true for us if we know Jesus. He knows us by name. We matter. We're not just a madman. We're not just a person with a particular disease. We're not just a single parent. We are John, Mary, whoever. And he died for me and he died for you. And when I get that awareness, then you see, I will treat other people in the same kind of way. That I will want to be to them like the true shepherd was to me. What a challenge that is. Present reality, false shepherd, true shepherd. A permanent relationship, what does this true shepherd offer us? Verses 7 to 10, 10, quite simply, it was on this that I preached at the cathedral that day, many years ago. 
It was about the way in and the way on. Twice he says, I am the gate. And he there is offering the way in. You've got to come through me. In the Epistle of the Hebrews, the writer says that we enter by a new and living way through the blood of Jesus. There could be only one way. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. The world, and sometimes that of the church, does not like the uniqueness of Christ. It talks about inclusiveness. It's a strange word. Of course, every single person, whatever their background, can belong to the church, but the idea that we can be there and we can go to heaven however we live and whatever we believe is not biblical at all. There's a uniqueness about Christ which he insists on. He is the way in. Oh, there are many ways to get to him, but only through him can we enter in. And uh, that's one of the lovely things about doing this at a communion service. You see, we come to communion, if we're believers, and it's an illustration of how we first came. We came once for all. You're only baptised once, but you take communion often. You're only converted once. But regularly you come back to that place and you remind yourself of how you entered in and what a difference that makes. It keeps you enthusiastic for the gospel. It saves you from arrogance and it saves you and I see this happen so often. You start by believing the grace of God and you enter, you end by thinking it's all by your good works. You've earned it. Indeed, we continue in the same way in which we began. So the way in, and it's intriguing in chapter 9, and this context is there, in chapter 9 when Jesus finds the blind man who'd been thrown out, he actually brings that blind man to kneel before him and say, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. One of the worst things we've done with Jesus, we've anaesthetised him. We've made him a nice guy. We've made him the sort of guy who never said anything that upset anybody else, and you might as well rule the New Testament out. He was always divide, dividing people, and he wanted, and he was delighted when it happened, that this man knelt and worshipped him. Lord, I believe the way in. How lovely if tonight when we kneel at this communion rail we want to say, perhaps for the first time, Lord, I believe you enter in. Secondly, the way on. When we're in, says Jesus, here are the things that are ours if we enter in. I am the gate, verse 9, whoever enters through me will be saved. Now look, he will come in and go out and find pasture. He offers security. Saved. That word saved, which comes at the end of the previous verse, that word saved can mean uh, safe. He will be safe, secure. It's got that note about it. And it's only when I've sorted out my eternal destiny that I can ever be secure. And that's why I said earlier on, the moment before death is not the most important moment. If I've sorted that one out, of course most of us hate the prospect of dying. I'm sure I shall fear it terribly. But the other side is sure. I know where I'm going. By the grace of God. That's secure. Safe. And if that's safe, then I can be secure now. But equally, I'll be secure. 
but I can go in and out. That's the glorious liberty of the gospel. It's in the Psalms, Psalm 121. You're going out and you're coming in. Not going out of the fold, but moving around in it, in all the liberty that he gives. You see, the devil's lie is that once you become a Christian, you lose your liberty. You're desperately bound. You have, you shall not. It's a terribly restrictive life. Oh no, not at all. If you think that's what the Ten Commandments mean, you've never understood them. They are the parameters that make life possible. And next week in Deuteronomy, we shall see the law of God, which is there not to keep us down, but to give us a freedom. It's the only thing that can make a community live. And our nation is desperately needing to get back to the way of God, which was once behind all our laws. And I could say that preaching the cathedral and the master cutlers do. And until we get back to that, that we will go on becoming a nation which has lost its freedoms and lost its liberty. Enjoy this liberty of Christian worship. You may not always have it. Even in Britain. I speak as a great-grandfather, so I'm allowed to say it to you now. Uh, just remember, we must cherish these things because they're desperately important and we may have to fight for them. The liberty. For the law of God is that which gives liberty. It protects. It's the parameter in which we can live and find glorious liberty. And with liberty and security goes real prosperity. In and out, says Jesus, and find pasture. That's the, the idea of, of prosperity. I don't mean the prosperity cult that if you're Christian, you'll always be wealthy. You'll always be well. Oh, no, not at all. But God could say through Moses to Joshua when he was going into the promised land that the way he would be able to be successful uh, if he put God first and his laws, then he would prosper and he would be successful. And that is something he wants to offer us. That is true prosperity, real satisfaction, which he alone can give. That's why pastoring is so important. Offering people the pasture of the gospel. I've, uh, the Keswick Convention, I gather, has just ended. It's the first time since 1984 I was not at the Keswick Convention. I've had withdrawal symptoms. Our son did ring us up from outside the tent and say it was still going on in spite of your absence, Dad, but it's not quite the same with you not here. By which he meant we haven't done our usual game of bowls in the park. Well, never mind, I'm sure there was more to it than that. But the Keswick Convention, uh, I am told by somebody who was an expert who studied all the sermons of the Keswick Convention down the years, the text most often preached at the Keswick Convention was Ephesians 5.18, and Ephesians 5.18 is keep on being filled in the Spirit, which is a good text to major on. Something that keeps on happening. That is to say that we keep on being renewed and filled in the Spirit. For the promise of life to the full links in with some words of Jesus in John 7 where he says that if we come to him hungry and thirsty, out of our innermost being will flow rivers of living water. When we went down, we didn't go down just with our great-granddaughter. I was doing a weekend for the church in Essex for their older people and they were doing a theme of a, of a treasure island and all these older people were dressing up pretending to be going on a treasure trip. I was able not to dress up. It was rather nice. As a visiting speaker, I could just be normal. But the message was this whole message of the uh, 
the treasure. And I wonder if that's something that you know and are enjoying. For at the end of that passage in Deuteronomy that we read, came the challenge. I set before you life or death. Choose life. And as in a minute we begin to move into communion, so I say to you, we set before you life or death. Choose life. Now many of you have, you've chosen it, we'll go on that way. Some of you haven't yet decided. And the way of Jesus, the way through the gate, the way the other side of Jesus is the way of life. Life to the full. I, I know I've mentioned it several times, this pulpit, those great words of Jim Elliot, who was a, a missionary who was martyred 50 years ago, just over 50 years ago. Uh, the great words of Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives what he cannot to gain what he cannot lose. Her mighty words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. Life. To gain what he cannot lose. Eternal life. And if I opt to keep hold of the lesser things, I may miss out on the greater things. Can I say something to you as I finish? Yeah. Communion can be a, a formality to some people. It's a lovely service, if you take it right, but it can be a formality. And I sometimes have used uh, the illustration of communion as a kind of gospel illustration. One day when I was in Edinburgh, when I was rector in Edinburgh, the bishop rang me up and said, uh, he, he didn't know what a guest service was. He'd never had a guest service. There they are. So, could he come to our guest service and sit on the back row? He said, I, I will remain incognito, but I'll sit on the back row and see what you do about a guest service. It's talking about remaining incognito. He came with a purple stock and a very clerical collar. But there we are. It's a reasonable way to keep incognito. And I used the illustration, which I always used. He thought that I'd done it specially because he was there. I used the communion as an illustration of how you come to Christ. Oh, I did it frequently. When you kneel in a few minutes' time, you will hold out an empty hand. And one of us will put bread and a cup into that hand. You don't come and say... Look what a good boy I am. Look, Lord, at what I've done for you. Look at the way of life I've lived. I'm handing it to you, God. Oh, no. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Now, we're not using prayer book service, but if we did, then what we would do is a service which would after me, a prayer afterwards where we offer ourselves back a living sacrifice. First we receive, then we offer back. It would be lovely for all of us as Christians if we demonstrated tonight that we've chosen life and we give ourselves back. And we want to be in the world those who help to bring life to others in a very needy world. And just possibly, somebody for the first time wants to hold out a hand and not just go through the outward sign, but the inward reality. Hold on to him and he will give you life to the full. Let me pray.